today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. The uh, big news, obviously, was uh, yesterday uh, as the conservatives uh, started to gather in Halifax for their policy convention. The uh, speculation was what was going to happen when Maxime Bernier showed up, because obviously he and Andrew Scheer have been butting heads. Well, uh, Bernier never showed up to Halifax. He did have a press conference in Ottawa yesterday, and, uh, well, it was uh, not necessarily what a lot of people expected. I have come to realize over the past year that this party is too intellectually and morally corrupt to be reformed. So, with that, uh, and a little kick in the pants on the way out the door, Maxime Bernier has left the Conservative Party and says that he is uh, probably going to organize his own political party. There are ramifications to that, and we've seen this act before. Joining us to talk about this is Henry Jasek, Professor of Political Science from McMaster University. Henry, thanks so much for the time. Good to have you with us today. Always a pleasure, Bill. Were you surprised by this? Uh, well, the timing maybe, well, I mean, it's pro- some people might have expected that or something like this. But in terms of the, actually this happening, this is, this is something that we shouldn't have been surprised about because this is probably the third time in the last 60 years where we've seen a splintering of the conservative uh, party slash movement, particularly or, uh, originating uh, certainly in one place in Quebec. Uh, sometimes we see that in Alberta and at the same time. But, uh, yeah, this is something that reoccurs, you know, every every 20 years ago, uh, or so with the Conservative Party. So You can always almost set your clock to it? Well, I, not quite that, <laughs> but it does seem, what, what, there does seem to be a pattern. We go back, okay, just very, very quickly for the, for the history of people. We, we saw when uh, Diefenbaker got weakened going into the early 60s, we had the social credit people came, came up, uh, elected some people in Alberta, and the credit east under Raoul Cowett did very well. Uh, they were the most successful of that type of movement uh, in the 60s in Quebec. And they hung on until, you know, for almost 20 years. And then suddenly we had the Bloc Québécois, which was a splinter off, off of uh, Brian Mulroney's conservatives. And uh, they uh, now they seem like they've run their course. They're down to five, you know, members in, in the parliament, as, as far as I can tell. And, uh, you know, they seem like they're just running out of steam. Now we're having the third wave coming out of Quebec, and now this is a, a, a another variant of uh, this conservative dissatisfaction in the province of Quebec that results in the splinter of the of the major party. Uh, but And that's not really an anomaly, is it, Henry? Because, I mean, the Quebec politics seems to be a wholly different animal. I mean, you know, liberals aren't really liberals, conservatives aren't really conservatives, uh, and on and on it goes there. It's awfully hard to tell the players in that in that show. It can't changes. And for example, yesterday began the provincial election in in Quebec, and uh, the, op- the of one of the two major parties, as a matter of fact, the party leading in the public opinion polls for, for the time being is a brand new, a relatively new party, the CAQ, who is very unclear what they, you know, for most people outside of Quebec will say, who's this and what do they stand for? Let's and the implications of this. Now I know that uh, yesterday Andrew Scheer. Uh, former Prime Minister Harper, Jason Kenney, a lot of high-profile conservatives uh, that are in Halifax right now pretty much dismissed Bernier and said, you know, good riddance to bad rubbish. This guy's been a pain in the butt to us anyway. But they've got to be concerned about what the implications long-term are going to be of this. That's right. And uh, even, if, even, if he can't, even if he can't throw together a very strong party uh, in the, for next year, I think he's, this is a 10-year project for him. 
And uh, we, you know, people have pointed out uh, quite clearly that when Preston Manning began the Reform Party with his rebellion against the conservatives in Alberta, he didn't do very well in the first election against Brian Mulroney, but uh, certainly uh, they burst onto the scene uh, in the second election that uh, they they contested. And, and, I mean, we already know the ramifications of that. I mean, uh, the Reform, of course, morphed into the alliance. Right. uh, But but what had happened for a period of time there, Henry, was obviously, as you say, it split the small C conservative vote, the the right wing vote, yeah. and and basically gave Jean Chrétien free hand to win election after election after election because he knew that anybody that was conservative was going to either go to the Alliance Party, the Reform, or whatever, or the Conservatives, and and he could go right up the middle. That's right. I mean, this this, as many people have pointed out, this gives a lot of comfort to. Uh, Justin Trudeau, certainly over the short term in, into next year, uh, having a splintered conservative party, uh, you know, generally will, you know, benefit a liberal party that's our, in power. And, uh, you, you know, the, uh, that, that's exactly what, we, what most people expect is going to happen. And it just depends on how strong an organization that uh, this new party, whatever its name is going to be, uh, can, can have. But uh, it will take votes away, and particularly in Quebec. Certainly the uh, social conservatives in Quebec, who are mainly in the rural areas, uh, small-town Quebec, they're, they're going to be a force there. They'll probably take a number of constituencies, and I'm sure... Uh, basically, the Bach Quebecois will sort of disappear, and probably the conservative seats will probably disappear as well, for the most part. And, and they, obviously, there's some discontent with the the conservative movement, a small state conservative movement, even in Alberta. I mean, you know, J- Jason Kenney really represents a breakaway party uh, that uh, that is not pure conservative. So it's happening. But I guess the thing that we need to keep in mind is, I know Henry, a lot of people. Some of the comments I read. Yesterday, a lot of uh, conservative supporters are saying, "Look, at this guy's—he's—he's he's not really going to be able to push it. You need somebody with a lot of charisma, a lot of net, like a you know this this leadership thing." Uh, Preston Manning was the guy that read the yeah. Reform Party. He was hardly charismatic, right? Uh, and it won- it worked for them. And it, you're right; it took a long time. But the 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 thing here is, with an election coming up next year, they don't have to win any seats. All they have to do is erode the conservative vote. I think people underestimate, too, the personality of uh, Bernier. I mean, this is a man who got uh, about 49% of the vote. Yeah, a little more than 49. It was for leader. He's their biggest fundraiser uh, as, a, as an MP. Uh, you know, he, he'll, have a, he'll have a lot of support in rural and small-town Quebec, uh, mainly on the social issues. And then, uh, then when you go outside of, the, uh, outside of Quebec, and particularly go out west, his economic policies are exactly what a lot of small-c conservatives from Manitoba to British Columbia really want to uh, see expo- uh, you know, put, on, put on the agenda and, 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 and championed by a conservative party or movement. And so, yeah, he, uh, he's got, a, lot of, he's got, a, got a, a real opportunity to have a lot of growth here. Maybe not next year completely, but I'd say within five years, a real problem for the conservatives. And, yeah, that, that uh, leadership thing, I think, is, is something that we need to keep in mind here. I mean, because that's why I said, sure, won that thing by, by percentage points. I mean, right. like t- tens of percentage points. It was, it was like 50-point-something to 49-point-something. So, that's I mean, right. it, it could have gone either way, really. Right. And, uh, and so there's, there's a lot of support uh, from coast to coast for Bernier, not just in the province of Quebec. Yeah, and, uh, and the ideas he exposes, and certainly this social conservatism, you know, this is somewhat on the uprise now. Uh, certainly, uh, we've been affected by, you know, the Trump factor and the, and the things that he's exposed down there. And, uh, you know, that may, you know, 
that has emboldened and you know awakened feelings in a number of social conservatives who now feel it's more legitimate to make the kind of arguments that Bernier is likely to make. Now, and again, some folks are saying, well, look, there's not going to be this huge exodus of uh, people in the conservative caucus. Uh, if Bernier is going to start a new movement, Henry, he doesn't really need MPs at this stage, does he? He just needs grassroots support. Yes, and he ha- needs some good candidates, because, but it's all going to be on him. These kind of parties are all on the leader. You know, we talked about Preston Manning. Go back to Ralph Coet, who was with the Creditiste uh, 60 years ago. His personality was the one that elected many seats in in Quebec. Uh, you know, Boucher, uh, you know, with the uh, Black Québécois. Uh, you know, so the, the it's all going to be focused on the leader. If you have a leader that people really like and trust and want to follow, uh, they'll elect uh, the candidates, even if they're people with uh, no names. Why is the party so fractious like this? I mean, the conservative movement. And, and you're right, this is not a Canadian phenomenon, because, I mean, it's happened with the Republican Party south of the border as well, mm-hmm. where there was a, an extreme faction that was even more f- to, to the right than, than many of mainstream uh, Republicans were, right. that has really seized control of, of the political scene down there, especially through the Republican Party and through the Congress and Senate right now. So as, you can't be dismissive of that. And I guess it was inevitable. I guess, you know, we've seen it here in Ontario with the last provincial election, mm-hmm. that, that politicians of that ilk seem to be able to garner that kind of support. And, and I, I would put Bernier in that class. Yeah, well, the, the conservative parties have a, you know, uh, in, in Canada, have a, have a real problem because they have really two sort of pillars inside of them. They have a pillar of people who are, you know, elites and leaders, uh, mainly out of the uh, economic uh, side of our societies, the business leaders and stuff. And they are conservative, but they're mildly conservative. They're slightly right of center. They have a business agenda. Uh, okay, and they're, they're the natural leaders, if you will, of a, of, a, of a mainline conservative party. And then you've got the populist right, and these are people who are non-elites. These are, you know, ordinary, everyday folks who basically, you know, go to their job, come home, spend time with their family and what have you. Uh, but they, you know, they are, they're not the natural leaders, but they have these concerns about uh, all sorts of social issues, whether it's uh, immigration, uh, you know, things changing too fast, uh, you know, uh, a lot of nostalgia among these people for the what they think of as the good old days, which uh, anybody who goes on the Internet knows there's just so many people out there saying if we only can go back to the 1950s, everything will be wonderful. Uh, and there's a lot of people like that. So uh, it's, uh, you know, the the hope that somehow we can recover all sorts of manufacturing jobs, which technology is destroyed, but you have leaders say, I'm going to bring back those manufacturing jobs when, in fact, uh, technology won't let you do that. Uh, you know, so the, these are people who are very upset. So that's the second pillar, and it's very hard for any conservative leader to really keep these two pillars in line and working together. There's, there's constant tension, and then every so often it breaks free, and it breaks free in certain places, like uh, the hot spots clearly are Quebec, Alberta, and then you can add in British Columbia, you know, uh, Saskatchewan and Manitoba. We generally don't see this type of, you know, uh, you know, splits in the Conservative Party in a place like Ontario or even out in the uh, Atlantic provinces. But uh, Quebec and the four western provinces, it's like they those are hot spots for this type of tension. It's almost a libertarian point of view, isn't it? Uh, you know, like, get government out of my face and just leave me alone and let me do what I want and let me live my life. 
Yeah, and that, that's sort of an basically sort of for these people. This is primarily an economic argument, but they may not be socially conservative. What what the base is, even among that second pillar. Uh, the Bernier is going after, you've got people who are the economic uh, conservatives who like that libertarian message, get rid of uh, marketing boards, which is one manifestation. Uh, and, and then you've got the social conservative aspect saying, oh, I don't like the changes in society. I don't like all these new, these immigrants coming in. They're, they're making, uh, you know, we're having a different type of society than we used to have 50 years ago. And, and I don't really like these changes. And so you have the, so you have a tension inside of that group. Now, Ultimately, I think after 20 years or so, that sort of plays itself out in these groups. And also the original leader leaves and generally doesn't have a successor who has the type of charisma that the original leader seemed to have. Well, I mean, they did cobble that together when, they, you know, the, the obviously the Alliance Party and the conservatives right. uh, uh, did come together. And But that was not without its controversy. I mean, you know, obviously Stephen Harper was chosen as the, as the leader of that party. Yeah. But, uh, but he and Peter McKay, I know that McKay was always part of his team there for the longest time, but there was always that friction between the two of them right, right. Uh, representing those two factions you've just described. Yeah, and then Harper would try to keep, you know keep those two sides together, and, and and it also helps when you become the government. And also, he was helped because there were problems with the leadership uh, of the Liberal Party yeah. in those days. You know, there there were certain mistakes that Paul Martin uh, made. I mean, there are certain good things you could say about Paul Martin, but he did make some mistakes in in in, in leadership that opened up the door to her uh, to Harper. And then, of course, uh, Dion uh, was. Some you know, a lot of people didn't like him, and of course, Michael Ignatieff was a total disaster as a leader of the Liberal Party. And it wasn't until Justin Trudeau came in and rejuvenated the party that they were able to get over that patch. Now, so but him rejuvenating the Liberal Party now meant there was real problems for the Conservative Party. With all the stuff that's gone on in the last 24 hours, tonight is the night that Andrew Shear addresses that convention. Yeah. Uh, given the the Bernier factor and what's gone on here. Uh, this is a pretty important speech for Sheer to really stake out his ground now, isn't it? He has to, and they have to figure out some way to try to nip in the bud the growth of the organization that Bernie's trying to put together. Uh, it's, uh, I mean, if he looks, the big problem is going to be for him. If, if some of those MPs begin to think that uh, Sheer is, is not going to win next year's election, and we already hear talk about that already, uh, even by conservatives, then some of those conservative MPs might say, well, I really agree with some of the things that Bernier uh, is talking about. Maybe I ought to just jump ship and go over to his new party and get in on the ground floor. It's going to be fascinating to see how this rolls out over the next little while. And, and like you say, they're, they're saying all the things they're supposed to say right now, but you got to know that behind closed doors there's a lot of concern about what may happen. And uh, I, for the, I know we have to go out of here in a second, but for the Liberals' part, when, when you see a party in disarray like this, obviously the best thing you can do is just shut up and let it happen. Oh, that's right. The Liberals Any gloating right now is yeah, only going yeah. to bring them together, isn't it? Yeah, the Liberals and the NDP just basically just uh, should sit on the sidelines, watch what's going on in the Conservative Party, and eat some popcorn. Henry... <laughs> <laughs> Henry Jasek, uh, political science prophet, McMaster. Always a pleasure, Henry. Thanks so much. Okay, always great talking to you, Bill. Take care. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Good news for consumers. Uh, the Supreme Court has declined to hear an appeal of a rule, rule, lower court ruling that uh, ordered the real estate board in Toronto to allow listings to show more information about the houses they're selling, including previous selling prices. Why is this a good idea? Well, let's uh, ask Aaron Memorian, who is the founder of Spring Team, broker and partner at Property.ca, who joins us here on the Bill Kelly Show. Aaron, thank you so much for the time. It's good to have you with us today. 
No problem. Thank you for having me. This is a problem that has been going on for quite some time. The ruling, obviously, is relatively new. But uh, uh, there's, there's been some conflict about information and information gathering and information sharing in different real estate boards. But it, it does vary from board to board, doesn't it, Eric? Yeah, I think every board ultimately controls their own data and you know uh, decides the fate of that. Um, uh, in, in our case in Toronto, as we all know, um, we finally get to have this information out there that... Uh, should have been out there ages ago, if you ask for my opinion. Well, I'm, I'm asking for your opinion. Yeah. Uh, what what yeah. does now? What do you guys specifically do? I mean, is uh, do you buck the trend and do what a lot of other folks don't want to do? Uh, well, right now, I mean, we can we can do it legally, but yeah. Prior to prior to now, I mean, um, sold prices were something that I was a little more liberal with um, when this battle first started happening. Um, we were we weren't necessarily publishing on an op- it on an, on on our open website, but we were providing it um, through this email service that I created, um, where we'd send weekly sold prices to folks. So I guess that would be considered bending the rules back in the day. But um, now we're just you know we just actually flipped the switch last night on the uh, property.ca website, where you will now be able to see after you log in a uh, chronological sort of sales history of each property you're looking at to give you a better idea of uh, what's out there and what things cost. Why was there a hesitancy to do this in the past? I, I mean, obviously you guys were a little more open-minded about it, but not a lot of your colleagues were not. Well, I, th- I think a lot of my peers are all you know on the same page. I just think it's a lot of the folks that are sort of stuck in the older way of doing things, maybe not quite um, you know up to date with today's consumer requirements. You know, like people just want that information here and now, and they get it in every other industry. Why not, you know, um, real estate? So um, I think the, the, the main fight was, you know, Toronto Real Estate Board has to stand up for its members, and, you know, not every single member is of the same uh, same mind as, as us. So they stood up for a big chunk of their members who believe that this data being released threatens their livelihood. Um, and I understand the initial sort of reaction, but, I mean, if you dig deeper you realize that sold prices really aren't that secret to begin with. I mean, you always know what your neighbor's house sold for. You always find out through community groups or, you know, you call up your local realtor and they probably told you. Um, this just takes it a step further and just allows you to kind of have the information on your own terms, like when you want it, you know, and there's absolutely nothing wrong with that. Well, exactly. I mean, <laughs> we, we've had discussions about this, and I'm sure you have with your clients. Uh, more and more people, I guess, are getting interested in the real estate market for a variety of reasons, obviously because of the the insanity that went on a couple of years ago. But, I mean, you know, if you've got an older couple, maybe, the, you know, empty nesters, and they're thinking, should I sell? Is this the best time to do it? Well, what are the houses selling for in the area? You kind of want to know that. I mean, and, and when you look at the listings, all you're going to get is the listing price, and that's not necessarily the selling price. So it's, it's information I think a lot of people would like to have at, on hand. Yeah, I think so. And I think you guys in Hamilton are, are, have been seeing a really insane market like we had prior to April 2017. You yeah. guys have been moving along really strong over there. And like when you're talking about that older couple that might consider, you know, downsizing or kind of, you know, cashing out that retirement, like I would love to come across that couple once they've had a chance to do a lot of their own research and make a decision of which road to go down, or which, you know, then I can help steer them. Um, you know, like there's a lot of time spent trying to catch people up to where the market is. Um, I would rather spend that time with my clients just trying to get them what they want after the majority of that sort of research is done on their own. Uh, and then I can kind of help put all that information in the context for them and help them make the right decision. You know, it just seems like a, a, a no-brainer, amazing situation for everybody. Well, when you're making a decision about, uh, as you know, you guys talk about the industry, the most important, probably the most expensive, uh, you know, purchase you're ever going to make. 
uh, you know, you want to get as much information as possible. And when I saw this story, era, the first thing that came to mind was was the battle that went on some years ago about information or lack of information, as it turned out, about buying automobiles. And and, and the same thing was going on then. People said, no, none of your business. What happened to that yeah. car before you bought it? None of your business how much that guy paid for it. Well, if you want to buy it, it is sort of your business. Well, it is. I mean, that's how pretty much everything in the world is priced based on what other people have paid for it previously, right? So it's just such a silly argument to say, no, you can't know that. Um, I'm sure, you know, I'm not too familiar with it, but the same thing happened with uh, stock prices and trading. You know, that opened up significantly way back in the day. Um, you know, I think that was probably one of the first industries to, to, to support open data. And there's still, you know, traditional stock brokerage houses are still thriving. In the United States, sales data has been available for well over a decade. The traditional full commission brokerage model still works. Like, this isn't something that's taking anything away from, from the realtor. It's, it's adding our ability to serve our clients a ton better if you're willing to embrace the technology and put the info out there like we have. We're agents. Obviously, you mentioned that your, your company was already open to doing this and, and was doing it in, in, in one way, shape, or form. But if, if for instance, a, a potential client was talking to another agent like that, would they, would they be free to give that information out about the previous sale prices of the house and other information about the house, or would they just say, sorry, our, our board won't allow me to do that? You know, I, I don't really know any sales rep or broker that would say, no, sorry, I can't help you with that information. I mean, I, I, I think, I mean, technically that was the previous rule in that if they weren't signed up with you as a client, you weren't, meaning there's some sort of listing agreement or a buyer representation agreement of some sort, then you technically would not be allowed to share that information in any way, shape or form. So if we break it down, of the 50,000 or so agents in the Toronto Real Estate Board, I bet you every single one of them has broken that rule once in the past. Um, so, you know, now it's just none of that to worry about. So I'm, I'm pretty excited with what the future holds. How forthcoming can you be with information about the property? And I'll go back to that analogy, era of, of the, you know, buying a car, a, a yeah. pre-owned, gently used, whatever, you know, <laughs> euphemism yeah. you want to use for a used car. Uh, but, you know, we as, as consumers now are demanding to get as much information, not just about the, the previous price, but uh, maybe about work that was done on it, uh, you know, whether or not it was in accidents, things of that nature. Is, is that information available about real estate properties, too, about not just the price, but, but the, the life of that place, whether or not there were problems with it? I think um, when we're talking about major sort of issues that could, you know, result in a stigma that could affect value, like if there was like a... A traumatic event in the home, or like a raging fire, or something like that. Most of those things are Googleable. Yeah. Um, I would, I would. I mean, is that even a word? I don't know. But I would suggest that uh, um, if you're buying a house, to Google the address. You'll probably come across any major thing like that. But in terms of like, you know, with a car, if it's been in an accident, you can find that out usually, right? But um, with a home, if it's had like a bad renovation, it's really hard to find that out in terms of you know being able to search it somewhere. But that's where you know your home inspector comes into play. Uh, but it wouldn't be something that would be readily available. And I don't think that kind of stuff really should be because it's really um, it, 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 it's objective um, information. I mean, sold data is, is, is hard data that we are happy to have out there, but everything else just kind of dilutes uh, the whole the whole system. I don't think it's effective. Uh, and one of the arguments I heard that the, the, the Toronto board anyway was using about this was they said there was a, a, con- a concern about confidentiality. Uh, and I couldn't quite get my head again around what they were talking about here. Is it the confidentiality of the of the owner, the current owner? Yeah, I guess uh, there are some people. You know, there are some high net worth individuals that have you know big big properties that don't report their the sale prices at the end of the day to the land registry. So you cannot actually see those prices. So there are ways to protect um, the, the the price of your home from being uh, displayed. You can speak to your lawyer about how to 
properly do that. But um, in terms of privacy, I mean, I don't, I don't understand why people wouldn't want uh, that information of how much they paid for a home to be out there, since it's generally out there anyway. Um, it, I don't understand the privacy issue there. Um, literally, I don't really have a, a great answer for you for that question. All right, just wondering, I'm trying to get some clarity. And, and again, like I say, yeah. it's not germane to your firm, but I mean, it was uh, to some of the other ones. Talk, yeah. to, Walk us through there about now with a potential client about this information and with this court decision right now, uh, yeah. how this is going to help. This is obviously information is power. And the more information you have, uh, the more informed decision you're going to make about situations like this. But I would think this makes your job a little easier too. Um, it did changes my role. I mean, it doesn't change my role because I've been working this way forever, but uh, what it does is it'll, when, a, when a, a client would reach out to me prior to this ruling and prior to having access to information, we'd be starting you know, the real estate process at a much uh, uh, earlier stage where we're not really looking at properties yet. We're kind of trying to understand where the market is, how much things are worth, that sort of thing. Um, I think now what's going to happen is the client's going to call me after they've done a ton of research already. Um, and then they're going to need my help to put that research into context for them. Because, you know, I could show you two exact homes, you know, that might look the same from the outside. One would have sold for one and a half million. One would have sold for a million bucks. You don't necessarily understand the nuances of why one did one thing and the other home did another. So there's still that sort of local feet on the ground intelligence that's super valuable. So I think um, to kind of wrap up that question, Clients are going to come to me more informed, so we can jump into the process a lot more quickly and to make the whole process more efficient, really. But you're going to have to offer that analysis and, and, and maybe to dissect this and maybe even interpret some of that data so they fully understand it. You know what? That's that's exactly it. And, um, you know, the information is all out there. And, you know, I've spent the past 11 years um, dedicating my, my work life to understanding that information and understanding the context and, and, and how it applies to specific streets and specific neighborhoods and all the different reasons why, you know, certain prices, homes achieve certain prices. And that's my value. Um, it's just knowing more than you could possibly Google. And that's the realtor's value. And I think you're going to see a lot of realtors going forward. Um, well, first of all, you're going to see a ton of them just kind of uh, move out of the industry. who just can't kind of find their space here. But the ones that are going to thrive are going to be the ones that really specialize and specialize in specific areas and just go all in and know everything you possibly can about that community, and that's where your value is. Yeah, because, I mean, we have ballpark ideas about some of these properties and about listings, and, you know, you hear numbers, and, of course, you see stories and read stories in newspapers and hear them on the radio uh, about yeah. some of these wildly, uh, you know, successful real estate ventures, and you figure, hey, I'm going to do that too. This, I would think that this information now is going to have the, the consumer, the potential buyer, is going to be a little more grounded about their expectations. <laughs> which is a benefit to us all. Um, you know, uh, having that information is going to help you. Uh, maybe it'll it'll help you make a decision to not make a move into real estate, you know, or uh, maybe it'll speed up a decision that you had been on the fence about. So it's going to bring forward a lot more decisive um, uh, buyers and sellers, and I love that. So now this is this is a, tr- a ruling with the, the, by the court by the Toronto with the rather the Toronto Board of uh, Real Estate Board. Uh, yeah. Any information about what's going on in other jurisdictions? I mean, Toronto is the largest real estate board in, I believe, it's definitely in the country. I'm not sure how that plays out in the rest of the world, but I think um, other boards will certainly follow. I, I find it hard to believe that the board is going to be able to hold on to this data moving too much deeper into, you know, as we approach 2020. Um, I suspect the Hamilton board will release this information eventually. 
Um, the East Coast already does it. I think Halifax uh, was one of the first markets to do it. Um, so I, I, I would expect this to unfold in all the boards across the entire country in the coming years, for sure. And obviously, like you say, the information sharing is going to be extreme here, and it's going to really help consumers uh, and everybody involved in this. You, you touched on something. I just we've got about a minute left here. Uh, sure. when, when we talked back in, in, like you say, two and a half, three years ago, when things were going crazy in, in the Hamilton and Toronto markets, and actually, it's just about every market these days. Yeah. Uh, just about anybody I wanted. I, I talked to so many people at that time era that said, "I'm going to get my real estate license." Boy, that's that's gold, you know. Uh, yeah. And it's it's not the same market now. It's not the same. And people are thinking, well, the market's going to crash. People are going to lose their jobs. Uh, is, is there still opportunity there for the people that know how to, to work this business and how, how to, to work in, in this industry? Oh, 100%. I mean, real estate's never been an industry where there's easy money. It's, it's always been a struggle to kind of get yourself in front of that client um, and, and to earn that business. So, yeah, I mean, like on a trans- per transaction basis, there is, you know, potential for, for good money to be made by realtors. And that will be continued going forward as long as you're able to provide that high level of service um, where you're adding value beyond just information. Um, so I think there's great there's great opportunity for people that are excited about the city and, and helping people move in and out of homes here, I think, here and everywhere else, really. Um, you know, I, we might see, um, you know, less aggressive growth in real estate board member numbers. Um, but uh, I think there's amazing opportunity still for motivated folks that are open-minded, for sure. All right, a little insider information here. Is it still a good time to sell? Uh, depends on where you are. I don't know about, <laughs> your, I don't know about your, uh, your Hamilton market, but here in the urban communities of Toronto, um, especially if you own a condo, the condo market, I've never seen it this aggressive before. The condo market is doing so well um, with almost double-digit gains um, in some months. Houses are still doing fantastic. They have a little bit less competition on houses um, than, than before the Ontario Fair Housing Plan um, was, was launched in April of 2017. But still, multiple offers pretty much on anything that, um, uh, that is uh, considered to be desirable, whether it's a house or a condo. It's a phenomenal time to sell generally. Ara, thanks uh, for the time today. Really appreciate your clarity on this, and uh, good luck going forward. Sounds good. Thanks so much for the call. Talk Take to you care. later. Take care. Ara Memorian, of course, founder of the Spring Team. Uh, and the Supreme Court ruling, which is good for you, me as consumers, because the more information we get about the house and and, and its its price history, I guess, uh, the better informed we can be about making decisions. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. We obviously are living here in the 21st century in 2018 in what we have called the digital age. However. Not everybody is living in the digital age. Uh, there are still some hangers-on that are hanging on to, uh, well, we'll call it some of the old technology. Well, that's the uh, the topic of a, uh, a radio documentary, a mini-documentary that was done uh, just a little while ago by uh, one of our interns here at CHML, uh, Lauren Panzarella. Uh, and uh, she sent it to me a couple of days ago. I listened to it, and I thought, this is, this is fantastic. It's informative. It's sensational. And I wanted to in- incorporate it into the program. Uh, so we've invited Lauren to join us here in studio to talk a little bit about the doc itself, and then, and then we'll play it for you. It's only about uh, 10 minutes long. Thanks for coming in today, by the way. Thank you for having me, Bill. Uh, a busy time for you. I know that you're crazy busy every day in the newsroom here, but I wanted to talk to you about how you came to do this in the first place. So the subject matter, let's start with that, how you picked that. Yeah, so 
Analog has always been a huge part of my life. Growing up, we've always had analog technology in the house. You know, my father grew up and shared his vinyl record collection with me. Uh, I always played as a kid with my aunt's dusty old typewriter in her <laughs> basement. Uh, and, you know, so it's always been a huge part of my life. And I've continued on those traditions. And what... Uh, inspires me most about this technology is it, I have a closeness with it. And I think I know my strong feelings about this topic. I know how much I love it. But I also have to realize I live in the world today of endless technology. It's everywhere. Oh, sure. Yeah. It's everywhere. And you can't, it almost feels like you can't escape it sometimes. So what I wanted to know, uh, my central question for this doc was, how are businesses, you know, here in Hamilton, uh, in Toronto, in the GTA, there are businesses that still sell analog products. They still service and repair analog technology. How are they managing to stay in business, even though we live in a computer-dominated world? Because there are people that are listening to us right now that's a typewriter. What's a, what's a, I, Now, those, those may be extreme examples, but, I mean, it's been out of there. But I, as I, you just mentioned, I know some people that still embrace that. Well, if you still have a typewriter, somebody has to service it. You have to still get parts. You can't just say, sorry, it's broken. Okay, throw it out. And, and I guess some people obviously clue into that. Certainly. And I think that uh, I think because there is, I don't know if it's, uh, I wouldn't call it a trend because I really do think that analog technology by its own design is meant to be timeless. There will, I always think, in my opinion at least, that there will always be people that love this uh, technology. And you're right. I think that there will always then have to be that relationship where you have to have someone that still is willing to share their knowledge, their expertise, and, you know, and uh, will help you if there's any problems. Well, you mentioned record players and, and, and LP records. Uh I've I've got some too. I still have a turntable. I, actually, it's it's not an old one. My wife and our daughters got me one for Christmas a couple of years ago, and uh, the Beatles box set, which I just embrace. Classic I love it. quality. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> and the, the British uh, versions of all of them. So it's kind of cool, kind of a collector's item. But d d LPs are making a comeback. Absolutely. If they ever left, I guess they, you know. And I listen. I I love the digital technology. I love to be able to get a CD or whatever it is, or listen to digital radio uh, to to get that fullness of that. But there's something kind of special about listening to an LP. Absolutely. And it's something that is, it's, I don't know how to describe that feeling. I often struggle to describe it, but it's almost like an indelible magic. There is a charm to this, uh, to this piece of technology. All it is, is a, it's a circle. It's a vinyl circle with grooves carved into it. But somehow it, you create this connection between you and this piece of technology. And it, it creates a fullness. It's, it sounds incredible. Also, it's just you there's something special about being able to hold something in your hand. And, you know, if it's by your favorite band, it's like having a piece of them with you. So it's it's you know, it's not maybe as convenient as, you know, a music streaming service like Spotify or Apple Music. But it's it's something tangible and real. And sometimes I feel like when you have digital technology, you don't have a sense of authenticity or that realness that you get with vinyl. Well, it's so I'm, I'm there with you when you mentioned about the LPs and, and, the, and the turntables. Uh, and then uh, you, you mentioned about the typewriters. I, I, we'll do that when we get into the dock in just a couple of seconds here. 
But uh, a good friend of mine, Linwood Barkley, who's a world-famous author, of course, uh, from Burlington, uh, his latest novel is called A Noise Downstairs. And the central figure of this is an old typewriter that he gets. This guy was a writer, uh, and this guy gets an old typewriter. And it just and I figure, yep, yeah, but there are still people that still gravitate to that. So this is, this is maybe it's a smaller segment of the population, but those people are there. Uh, and and the, the, the subject matter here is not just them, but it's the people that are still in business servicing this and making this stuff. And th- th- you must have got some great stories from some of them. Certainly. I I was blown away just by some of the stories that I heard, uh, not only from the customers themselves, but the business owners. It seems the, like I, I interviewed many, maybe three or four and I get the same story every time you know why what's keeping customers coming into your store and at the every every time I ask this question I get the same response it's the people the human connection is everything uh, you know customers making that relationship you know being able to exchange ideas and thoughts and uh, you know in your memories and your experiences it's a huge part of this business and why this continues to be uh, possible. Well, because in that physical environment of that shop, uh, there are like-minded people. Absolutely. In other words, you know, if you like records, for instance, and LPs, uh, you're not going to find too much in the way of support anywhere else because it's just about everybody else is into the digital world. But you can go there in your own, your, your own little world there with Certainly, people that yeah. share that love. Absolutely. And, you know, it's just one of those unique things that you just can't find, you know, you can buy uh records uh, online. You can certainly do that. But I know every time I go into those record stores and I ask the customers, like, why? What brings you to an actual store when you can just buy it in your bedroom? And they say, well, I know so-and-so, the record store owner. We have a rapport. He knows what I like. He knows what to suggest to me. So you get that expertise. You get um, that customized service. You get that personal service. And you get to you know, talk with, like like you said, like-minded people. Well, the experience that f- for folks who have never done that is going into records, so it's flipping through the albums. Absolutely. Reading the liner notes, yeah. and, and you, you can't do that online, obviously. You don't have that same sort of situation. So I get that. I understand that. Let's let's listen to this now. It's, it's a fabulous documentary. Uh, I'm hoping this is the first of many that you do because uh, it's sensational, and I, I really was blown away by it. So I wanted to share it with our listeners, too. So uh, we'll, we'll get right into it right now. Uh, thank you so much for coming in. And, thank uh, you so much. We'll talk again when you you do part two of this, okay? <laughs> sure thing. Thanks, All Bill. right, here we go. Now more than ever, technology is involved in all aspects of our lives. It's easy to find ourselves entangled within our own little ecosystems of electronics. With all these gadgets around, it's no surprise that we're spending an increasing amount of time in the digital space. According to the Canadian Internet Research Authority, a majority of Canadians are spending an average of three to four hours a day online. Yet despite this influx in gadgetry, local businesses in Ontario are continuing to sustain themselves by relying on the sale and service of analog technology. I'm Lauren Panzarella, and this is The Last Bastions, Rediscovering Analog in the Digital Age. In order to discover what's keeping these local analog businesses alive, I interviewed several business owners and their customers. These are their stories.
One of the most recognizable and beloved pieces of analog technology is the vinyl record. Nevertheless, new information shows that Canadians' music consumption habits are shifting towards digital media. A report by Nielsen Canada suggests that although Canadians are consuming more music on average, most of this increase can be attributed to the rise of on-demand audio streaming services like Spotify and Apple Music. Last year alone, streaming services accounted for 53% of total audio consumption, whereas physical albums only accounted for 22%. To find out how record store owners are coping with the movement towards digital music, I spoke with Scott Bell, the owner of Revolution Records on Ottawa Street in Hamilton. Bell, himself a veteran of the record industry, has spent 20 years working at Cheapies, one of Hamilton's most iconic record stores. Having managed his own store for close to three years, Bell insists that even though there's a place for digital music today, customers continue to return to his store for a unique shopping experience that cannot be matched by online retailers. Record stores are an actual culture, like it's an experience, and talking to the clerks and you could order it off of Amazon, right? They have everything, right? And the prices aren't bad and or whatever, but you know, people like coming down and interacting and seeing things. Not only are his customers in tune with Bell's message, so too are the statistics. A report by Nielsen Canada shows that in 2017, vinyl record sales increased for the seventh consecutive year. One of the reasons for this increase in sales is the reemergence of Record Store Day. For the many stores participating, the annual event offers customers with sales and access to exclusive record titles. Bill describes the importance of Record Store Day for his business. It has grown in my store. You know, like a huge increase in sales every year to the point where this April was just crazy. There was 50 to 100 people lined up to get in my store and and I opened at 8 a.m. In the case of Revolution Records, Bell shows that when it comes to maintaining a sustainable business in the digital era, it's important to not only foster meaningful relationships with his customers, but to also create an inviting shopping experience. Although businesses like Revolution Records demonstrate that it's possible for analog businesses to endure, operating a small business, let alone one that deals with analog products, does not come without its own set of challenges. Perhaps one industry that's suffered the most because of our increased consumption of technology is the typewriter business. Long gone are the days of loaning paper into rubber platens, clicking away at the keys, and listening for the chime of the return bell. Nowadays, nearly three-quarters of Canadians are typing up documents, surfing the web, and checking their emails on their desktop computers and smartphones. I spoke with Nick Caddick, the owner of Sigma Typewriters located at Upper James and Fennel here in Hamilton, to discuss the challenges that accompany the typewriter business. After 39 years in business, Caddick is still going strong at the age of 82, and his passion for typewriters is as healthy as ever. He first began working with the machines as a young man learning his trade in Europe. After immigrating to Canada, he eventually found work in several typewriter shops. He even worked for Herb Blake, the man who sold the first typewriter in Hamilton. He hasn't left the industry since. During the day, Caddick spends most of his time in his shop, nestled in between the towering stacks of antique manual typewriters, ribbons, and spare parts, repairing and selling typewriters. Although Caddick enjoys his work, he acknowledges that his beloved industry is a dying one. Let's face it, it's, it's not a future in this business, really. Otherwise, they would be open. Uh, new stores and uh, new product. 
So anyway, it's a, it's a tough, tough market. So for me, I got my pension, and that keep me going, you know, to survive. He adds, the decision to continue running the store does not come without sacrifice. Mounting rents, missing parts, and the ever-growing presence of computers are just some of the difficulties he faces. Nevertheless, Kadok remains resolute in his fervor for the craft. Not only does he persevere because he loves what he does, but as one of the last bastions of the industry, he feels it's his duty to educate future generations about this centuries-old technology. And Caddick's customers are taking note. He explains that his customers are mostly young people, some even as young as six, who have fallen in love with the charm of the traditional typing machines. Kelly, a customer of Caddick's, happened to be in the shop. When I asked her why she made the decision to visit his store, Here's what she had to say. I don't like to go to like a hipster place. You pay a lot of money for nothing. So I found this magical place with a gentleman who knows what he's doing and has been doing it for years. So today I just happened to be my day off. So I make a special trip into Hamilton just to visit Nick. Customers like Kelly, who are embracing the analog tech trend, illustrate the importance of Caddick's work. Without his expertise and dedication to persist despite the difficulties of the market, the typewriter industry in Ontario might already have been written out of existence. Increased use of technology can pose a challenge for businesses that work with analog technology. Some analog business owners in the province have begun to use technology in a new, subversive way. John Chan, one of the owners of Wonderpens, a fountain pen and stationery shop in Toronto, shows that embracing digital technology does not have to spell death for the analog business. Chan feels social media plays a vital role in his business model by helping to bolster the brand's authenticity. I think the biggest thing is authenticity. I, I think um, customers are looking for that. We've, we've always been very open about who you're buying from, putting a name to a face. We share our kids' stories here also. We, we have a cat and dog, so it's, it's just all part of, part of our, our story. Chan also adds that social media allows for his business to promote new products and to connect with new clientele. Chan says by using Twitter, he's been able to attract a growing group of fans at their monthly letter-writing club, which in turn has helped him to form a loyal customer base and keep the tradition of letter-writing alive. It's, it's a chance uh, once a month for people, like-minded people, to come together, just sort of write letters. Um, and we get asked all the time, uh, what do you teach at the letter-writing club? Well, we, we can show you how to write a letter, but it's really just for people to take some time out of their day and dedicate to it to write together and have like-minded people doing it with you. Um, so community is very important to us. Chan demonstrates that the arrival of technology ought not to be feared. Ironically, by adopting digital technology as a means to promote products and engage with the surrounding community, Chan proves it's possible to entice customers to shop at stores that sell analog products. I'm gonna sit right down and write myself a letter. Managing an analog business in the digital age is undoubtedly a trying endeavor. Yet business owners like John... Nick and Scott are proving time and again that small analog businesses can succeed and even thrive in the digital age. Having had the opportunity to speak with some of these business owners, it is clear that the reason people continue to shop at analog businesses is because of the human connection that forms between store owners and their customers. They like supporting me and they like coming down and they like interacting and and purchasing stuff here. Like. I don't know. What's the point of supporting Amazon? <laughs> this relationship between sellers and consumers goes beyond a mere transaction. It's much deeper than that. The experience of shopping at a local business is much like analog technology itself. 
It's highly personal. It's about establishing a gathering place where passionate, like-minded people can get together to share knowledge and experiences about their favorite analog accessories. Although digital and big box retailers may offer convenience or cheaper prices, it seems that this communal customer experience is irreplaceable in the hearts and minds of many consumers. For this reason, analog businesses in this province are continuing to defy the statistics and show that it's possible to prosper in the era of endless technology. Lauren Panzarella, 900 CHML. Lauren Panzarella. Uh, analog in a digital world. Great stuff. Thanks so much for this. The Bill Kelly Show. Weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML.